out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Dunstan Bruce, one-time member of Chumbawamba, but has now just brought out a film which is titled Am I Invisible Yet? A story about what happens when your life is no longer in a band. And that existential angst, but also, very interestingly, apart from the film, he's also got a one-man show that's going to be touring, which is also titled Am I Invisible Yet? And this is going to be coming to Norwich Dis and Stone Market in the next couple of months, this being September and October. There are more dates, starting in Barnsley, ending in Leeds, from the 15th of September right through to the 24th of November. If you go to his Facebook page, become a friend. He loves all that kind of stuff, that's all good. Anyway, this is the interview. I will just warn you, sometimes the reception hasn't or wasn't that great on this occasion. It's all right, but it's a little bit irritating even for myself. But look, I don't want to put you off because it's a great interview, great chat, and you're going to enjoy it. So look, after several minutes of um, interesting chat about this and that, we got down to the exciting subject that was the reason for making this film. Dunstan, tell us more. Tell us now. To be honest, I never set out with the intention of making a film about what happens afterwards. That is something that the film turned into over the years of making it. I started off with the idea of making a film about what can a politically motivated band do? Uh, Can you achieve anything? Can you change anything? Can you make a difference? I wanted to make a film about those sort of ideas. And what happened was that... uh, co-director Sophie Robinson about five or six, seven years ago. And uh, she didn't know anything about Chumbawamba. She wasn't a Chumbawamba fan, knew the song, that was about it. And so we started making uh, the film together and it became apparent after a while that um, uh, that there was a a more interesting uh, story that we hadn't told that is maybe about what you do as a middle-aged person as you enter uh, a a stage in your life when you start to become, uh, to feel invisible, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, uh, you know, which is uh, what the, uh, as you know, the one show is called Am I Invisible? Yeah. Um, And so, and so we sort of, uh, I, so we saw, so there was different questions that we wanted to answer with the, uh, with the film I Get Knocked Down. And those were questions about, uh, what you do when you um, when you feel as though you're becoming invisible and you still want to change the world and you still want to be part of a movement and stuff like that. And so what was interesting about making the film is that in a sort of a meta sort of way, the film and the one show became the uh, the things that got me out of that low point. And uh, I realised that the things that I could do were, uh, you know, by telling the story of Chumbawamba and telling my own story and then turning that into a one-man show, I felt that was that was something that I do on a creative level and hopefully on a way that will touch other people and uh, inspire other people and uh, uh, get um, some sort of uh, launch pad for people to think about what they're doing in their lives because uh, it's... That's what it did for me. You know, the whole process uh, helped me get out of a, a, a very low point in my life. 
Did you, I mean, with, with, with the story of Chumbawamba, because it starts kind of in the very kind of early 80s, doesn't it? And then, you know, you, you sort of, you've got your cult following and you're sort of making your sort of angsty records that are, you know, like aren't appealing to the mainstream particularly. And then you have your big hit, which is kind of probably one of the most surprising things that's ever happened in your life. But then with the band, it's a bit like a, a space rocket taking off several members of the band decide to kind of leave for the for the good of the beast so to speak did that was that quite an in, a difficult experience that you had because it was you alice was it anybody else who who sort of said look we really have you know chumbawamba mark one has got well, to finish when when yeah when when chumbawamba changed from an electric to a, a an acoustic outfit that was a remarkably pragmatic decision um, where we'd re- we were aware of the fact that we were selling less and less records and less and less people were coming to see us. And um, we weren't really making any uh, uh, money from what we were doing anymore. Uh, we were using the money that we'd made from tub thumping to keep the band going for quite a few years, I guess. And so we did an album where we made the decision that we would promote it as much as we could. We would say yes to absolutely everything. And if that made no difference to either record sales or sizes of audiences at gigs, then me, Alice, Damba and Harry were all going to leave and the band was going to continue as an acoustic outfit, which it could do in a really efficient way. uh, where that did make that did make uh, money, and they carried on for, I think it was about another seven years or something, or was it longer? I don't know. Anyway, they carried on for quite a long time after that, um, doing an acoustic thing. So we we like we all left uh, under very sort of like uh, amicable circumstances, really. Um, what what did happen when that when that uh, when I left was that. Uh, I hadn't actually planned for what I was going to do next time, so put anything in place uh, to what to how I would then um, uh, fulfil any creative needs or anything like that. Because there was a point in my life where um, I just moved to Brighton. I just had a, uh, I always just become a father for the second time, and so it was. It was, uh, it, was it was a point in my life where it was um, it was quite good timing in a way. Um, and then I thought, I want to do something else. I want to try and do something else uh, now. And uh, and so I started making, uh, after a few years of uh, being a sort of a primary uh, carer for kids, I started to uh, get into making uh, music documentaries. Um, right. And did that? And did so that, that fulfill? Did did, did that, that fulfill the sort of the space that the band had sort of left? You know the the. No, no, because what I realised was making films about other bands when you've been in a band, it's like you just think, oh, I wish that was me on stage now. I wish that I, I should be doing that. That's what, I, that's what I thought. I just thought, I really miss it. I really miss it. And what, what happened actually, I, I did a tour. I was working for Levelers for years, and I did, uh, we did a tour. Uh, which was of small venues, um, and what they did in them every day on tour. So what they did, sort of for a laugh more than anything, is they worked out tub thumping, and we used to do tub thumping as an encore every night on that tour. And um, 
that was the first time I'd been back up on stage for years. And I really enjoyed it. I thought, oh, I actually really like doing this. It's really good fun. And then, and that really thinking about, you know, what I was doing and I just thought I've got to sort of get something off the ground again. And uh, that's when I created a, a band called Interabang. Uh, quite a few years. It's in the, it's in the film. It is in the film, and yes. Strange, and strangely, a lot of the one-man show, uh, the words, uh, a lot of the words and the lyrics that I use in the one-man show are all to do with, are all from Interabang. Uh, songs or things that I've written since then. Um, just a minute, my oven's beeping. I'm just going to go switch <laughs> my oven off. Yeah. Yes, don't don't do anything without the oven. This is this is true. Wait a minute, I'll just hit. Yes. So so one thing. Oh yes. Yeah, so the what? So the. Uh... Hi, I'm back. You're back. Yes. So what you actually? You were just about to say something there. Okay, so one oh, thing. Yeah, that... yeah, I was just, so I was just gonna. Go on. Okay, one yes. Well, the one thing that I've noticed because I've been doing this show now for quite a few years and probably done I don't know, I don't know. It said you've uploaded nearly eight hundred. So I've done a lot of interviews with bands, and there is this kind of five year wow. narrative with a band, which is like you know the twelve month honeymoon period. They get a single. This is probably the eighties more than or the nineties. John Peel gives it a play. You get a John Peel session. You, you suddenly think, wow, you know, we've got friends and family who are playing, you know, elsewhere from our little community that are coming to see us. They get their first album. Things are going well. They're around their little transit band of all the art centres in, in the UK, which you, as you could appreciate, is a tiny little place. So you can sort of almost put a tour together and think we've made it. And then the second album comes along, which is often a bit tricky. And if you get to the third album, which is really lucky, you know, you know that, it's all going to be over within that kind of five-year period. Whereas, but then it's what happens next. And I guess your film does does highlight this kind of massive void because you've been a teenager, probably in that that kind of um, kind of formative years. But in those days, being in a band was a full-time job, wasn't it? Okay, you're probably unemployed or on the job seekers allowance, you know, drinking, smoking, having all the fun of a teenager or someone in the early 20s, not thinking about anything else for that period of time and then suddenly it's over and most people have got this massive problem they're kind of either in their mid to late 20s and they've got no skills and they've fallen out with everybody they've got no money and they've just been the music industry they realize even on a you know on an independent has probably screwed them over more than a major <clears throat> Because, um, but it's even worse because they thought that they could trust the people, unlike a major. So your kind of career with Chumbawamba is quite amazing, isn't it? Because it did sort of last for so long. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was why was that? Why did it last for so long? Probably because we kept ourselves out of the mainstream for so long, I guess. Um, because we started off as a very politically motivated group of people. Uh, the bands. Are- was a way we realised that we could um, impart our message through our music. Um, and we were part of a big political scene and we were part of a big squatting scene. We were part of an anarcho scene. And uh, that was like a, the bedrock of, uh, of, of being uh, able to play anywhere in the country because there would be similar anarchist groups all over the place who were like um, uh, creating uh, scenes in different towns and different 
these. And so, and so we, are, we were part of a network and we were part of a community. And, and so the shows themselves felt as though um, what was important about them was such a, it was a place where people came together with similar ideas. And, uh, and, um, and, and so you met up and um, it was like, you know, they, they were like big celebration of the scene in a way. Uh, and it wasn't just uh, turning up at a gig, watching a band and going home. It felt like it was much more than that. Um, and that was, and that, that went on for quite a long time because we did that um, for in the early 80s. And then we found that same community all across Europe. And so for a lot of the uh, late 80s and 90s, uh, we used to tour Europe relentlessly, just playing various social centres, anarchist squats, all around Europe, and we were part of that whole scene, and that was uh, that was a that at that time that was a really big scene, and it was really um, it was it was a really rewarding time for us because we got to meet you know we got to meet people all over all over Europe basically, and, yes, and feel as though we were part of something bigger than just being a pop band. We felt as though so we weren't that we were never that interested in getting a song in the charts uh, or being you know being on top of the pops. Those weren't our motivations. In a way, because um, because we really quickly um, as part of this huge um, this huge social scene right across Europe. And because um, within the film that you you know um, it's just coming out, you you all live in a squat, a community squat. This, this is quite a critical part of the, the 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 band, really, isn't it? Because this obviously is going to keep you all together in more ways than one. When did people start leaving the squat, the mothership of Chumbawamba? Uh, probably sort of the late eighties. Uh, people started uh, moving. A few moved out, moved back in, or moved out again. Um, but that house was still the hub of everything. Alice. Stayed there until about 1999 or something. She said she didn't move out till about 99. So it was always, so it was always the place that we, you know, was the centre of a lot of our activities and uh, of a lot of our social lives. I suppose um, it always felt. I mean, that's why that's really why you know that's why it's in the film because interesting times in Chumbawamba's life was those early years when we started out and what we tried to create and then what happened. When came. A lot of the other story, a lot of the other story of Chumbawamba is very typical of very many bands. You know, you get bigger and you tour, you tour, you tour, you play more audiences, you know, and then you start bothering the lower ends of the of the charts and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then, um, you know, and then it blew up. And so, um, those parts of those story, those two bits of the story were to me the most interesting parts, and the bits in between. You know, they're all in well done now, sort of, and all that sort of stuff in, in a film that we made. Uh, yes. In, uh, did you, did the band, did the band struggle when, you know, Thatcher leaves the Conservative, lead, you know, government? Was there a period of existential angst for the band that suddenly we had the John Major years? I just just wondering because then things start to really change again don't they and we sort of get into this world that is brit pop and then in the 80s we'd had the kind of travelers yeah, movement what... and 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 the sort of the peace convoy and that got absolutely smashed with battle of the beanfield but then during the early 
90s, the kind of traveling community with people like the Levelers, and then you had Sensor and all these other people, mostly with didgeridoos, which was quite irritating, really. But there was, there was suddenly, you became kind of fashionable in a weird way. By the time you did Anarchy, there was like a lot of well-crafted songs on that album, but you were also touring with people like the Levelers who suddenly were headlining Glastonbury Pyramid Stage on a Saturday night. I think I think what happened in the in the nineties was that um, you know I mean basically ecstasy came along and that a lot of a lot of people got into into ecstasy and it changed the way that uh, political movements worked and um, it was it was a fascinating time because um, it, for me it was it was a moment at which thought wow you know maybe we can maybe you know we're coming together as a community again and we can change the world in some way and I had that feeling in, since the 70s with punk uh when I thought you know like wow this is change this is revolutionary this is going to change stuff uh and when X came on and everybody was everybody to be uh taking it um there was a completely different feeling about um how we would change how we would change the world in a way, and it became um, uh, it became less. It seemed to become less about uh, mass movements and more about you know individual you know hedonism and stuff like that. Uh, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed those years, and I think what happened was that um, we'd spent a lot of time a lot lot of time under a Tory government, and it felt as though things were never going to change, and that we would never get rid of that uh, government. So when Blair came along with his new Labour uh, project, um, that was uh, that was that was sort of like a kick up the arse in a way. I mean, we were still we were still involved in uh, in various class struggles, uh, uh, the Dockers' strike in particular in the in the nineties, um, and so we hadn't lost we hadn't lost, we hadn't lost touch with all that sort of world, but we were also aware that um, you know the movement had changed quite a lot and. Um, and, and when New Labour came along, uh, there was a sense uh, that, uh, uh, I mean, to quote the dream, but there was a sense that things were only going gonna to get better. Uh, yes. And a lot of people believed in that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, it felt and, uh, quite uh, different. But, then, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, and and I suppose, uh, you know, so why, when, uh, um, you know when all that all that stuff happened with Prescott, the Brits. I mean, we were we were sort of attacked by the right wing and by the left wing, probably more vociferously by the left wing because uh, um, all the all all the all Labour supporters because they couldn't understand why anybody would not be you know like would attack uh, any part of the Labour government because uh, they thought that um, you know things were changing for the better. Yes, because in the film. There is a sort of a bit about you mentioned that that there's sort of the atmosphere within the band is going sort of poorly, and it was it sounded like people's behaviour was starting to sort of get messy. Was this during the early '90s or the late yeah. '80s that things started to get very messy within the band? Mid '90s, the mid '90s, more than more than anything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a strange. It was a strange time. I think we lost our way as a band as well, uh, and weren't quite uh, uh, felt as though we had to do something different. We did an album that uh, a lot of us were quite dissatisfied with, and 
We realised it wasn't a very good. It wasn't a very good album. I was swinging with Raymond. Uh, um, uh, there was there was sort of a general feeling of dissatisfaction about that, and you know, it's a couple of people left. Uh, well, you know, a couple of people left around that time, and um, so it was. So it wasn't. It was. I mean, in the film, it was. It wasn't a good time for us, and we weren't really sure about what we were do. What we were trying to do for for a couple of years. And so when we made so when we made that album, when we made the Tub Thumper album, that was a really good. That was you know the time when we sort of gave ourselves a kick up the arse, basically. Yes. I said, look, if we're going to do this, let's do it. When you made before that, when you made, really that was... but when you made Anarchy, and it has you know give the anarchists a cigarette and then time bomb and homophobia, was that what was the atmosphere like with the band then? Because these songs seem to become a lot sharper and a lot more kind of. Accessible, really. I, I, I mean, I, that's my Jumbo Amber album, Anarchy. It's still, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great album, and I think, I think it's when live uh, was we were, we were really, really on top of our game at that time. Uh, it was a really good time for us, and at that time, we were in Europe and playing to a thousand people every night. Uh, it just felt like things were really, you know, we'd sorted out a way. We'd gone full time with band and we put a way where we could all make a quite meagre living from the band. And so it was, so we were independent in, in, in all ways in a way. And we were, it felt like we were like, you know, controlling our own destiny and we were, and we were um, creatively, we were sort of, we'd worked out how to do you know what it was we wanted to do and how to do it um and so everything clicked i think with the with anarchy for me you know and that, and that time and and i think the live shows were fantastic around that time yes really, it was a really it was a really positive time for us and we were having a lot of fun with you know we were having a lot of fun with it you know we were having a lot of fun with it it was like We'd done that too. We toured the levelers for a while, and, we, and our audiences got got bigger on the back of that. And it just felt like we were, um, you know, we were existing very happily as a as a, a politically uh, charmed who was saying stuff and having a lot of fun. And our our shows then felt like complete celebrations uh, of you know, bringing people together and having a really good time. That was that became really. You know, important to us. That's how the shows felt, and it was so. It was really good fun around that time. So when you'd made "Swinging with Raymond," which still had some good songs on, yeah, and then "Tub Thumping," was there sort of some some quite serious conversations within the band to decide what you were going to be doing next, especially with the terms of your record label yeah. and also the direction of the band? Yeah, what were they like? Um, Did, I think swinging with swinging with Raymond was a, was a watershed moment, really, where we we did that album with just on autopilot almost, and then um, once it once it came out, what was what was telling was that we did very few of those songs live. You know, I think we realised that we didn't actually that good, um, and we were struggling a little bit getting on with each other. Um, it was a great time for the band. And so um, we did have a few sort of crisis meetings um, 
I, I, you, I, I was on the brink of leaving at that point. I was going. I, I was thinking, well, this is this. You know, I was just sort of a bit um, fed up with how everything was going, and and we weren't. Some of us weren't really getting on that well, and and so we had, you know, a couple of meetings where we were honest with each other, and um, and that, out of that came the idea, like, right, let's let's you know, let's let's do one more album. And uh, see, you know, and and maybe you know this will be it. And just as it happens, you know that, that it all came together. Um, it all came together really successfully because we decided that it did feel as though it was make or break. You know, making that uh, the Tub Thumper album. Um, yes. But we had to, you know, we really had to pull things together. And and so I think that Tub Thumper album is almost like is almost like a, a I I related back. To the anic, I think it's like so sort of, you can see the, the sort of the lineage between the two in a way, how ideas had uh, developed from one to the other, and we were really, really happy with that album. Really happy with that album. And what happened was uh, we were on One Little Indian at the time, um, who were called something else now, One Little Independent or something. I don't know what they're called. Um, anyway, they uh, we took the album to them, been really pleased with it. We were really pleased with it. And they said they didn't like it. They weren't happy. And they told us to, um, we either had to get some producers in to produce it, or we had to go away and re-record it. And we were just furious. We were apt. And so we just left. We said, right, that's it. We're off. We're, we're not doing this anymore. And so we left one, so we left one in Little India. They let us take the album with us, but then we didn't have any way of putting it out. So we had to find a way of putting it out. And so we didn't really realise the potential of the song Tub Thumping at the time. It was only for a minute live that people would say, wow, that song should be a single. That song's amazing. You should do that as a single. And then uh, uh, some old friends of ours got involved in helping us record it. And that's when uh, the uh, record industry heard the song and uh we're like wow this song's amazing it's gonna be a massive hit uh, and we were like is it really and uh, and that's why we got offered loads of record contracts and had the opportunity to sign tables and then uh, it all went mental yes it did go slightly mental did you i mean at that stage because we we hear a lot about sort of music and you know it's about the young people but did you find then it's not necessarily about your age but actually if you've got the product people are going to just say, I don't care what the band looks like and what their age is. This is just going to be chart gold. We are literally going to be daytime Radio 1 here. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, people were really fascinated by the fact that we'd been going for 15 years before that happened. That was always a big talking point in whatever interviews we'd done. They'd be like, how long have you been going? How has this just happened? Like, and, it, and I mean, we couldn't explain it. I don't know. And, and that was the sort of argument that we had within the band, even, you know, why is this, you know, and and some of us would be like, it's just a, you know, it's just a happy accident, you know, we've just struck a chord and other people were like, no, we've been building up to this years and years and years working out how to you know, how you make, how you write a song that's, you know, has all but the, the interest. That, but that also uh, happened with Pulp as well, didn't it? Pulp were one of those bands who'd been knocking around for the 80s. I remember talking to various people in Sheffield yeah. who said they'd go to parties and they'd go, oh, Pulp are off, you know, playing in the living room again. Let's just ignore them and go in the kitchen. So they were trying to, no one thought, <laughs> everyone was thinking, Jarvis, just give it up. You, you know, you're not very good. So 
yeah, and, you, yeah. and fire records have um yeah have got your <laughs> material so don't bother so it's kind of interesting that you you and pulp seem to sort of be able to say look if the product if the product is sounds so mean but um if, if if the songs are good enough it doesn't really matter what the band looks like as long as you can yeah yeah deliver a good chorus there you go and when you were yeah. recording tub thumping yeah. did you did it feel like yeah this is our 99 red balloons <laughs> it didn't no no it didn't oh um we, we when we started we played that we used to play songs off that album live for uh quite a while before that album came out um and uh People would come to shows and say, that's that's be a single. Uh, that song should definitely be the one that's a single. And we were like, should it? Oh, right. Okay. That's okay. Maybe you're right, you know. And enough people said it to us, they thought, okay, well that maybe that one, then maybe that one should be the single and maybe should be the first track on the album, then I, mean, I guess, because everybody seems to really like. Um and so it was it was not, I mean, a lot of people, because a lot of people think. Or a lot of people like to believe that we signed to a major label and then uh, had a single, but we'd already written, you know, the song was being written a long time before we signed to a major. So we already had the song because of that one song, because people saw the, the, the potential in that one song. And so yes. it was, you know, so and and it was a huge hit all the way around all around the world. So did that um, because because I didn't it, that was the biggest surprise. Because I know when I did an interview with Miles Copeland, who managed the police, he sort of, his business model was like, well, we've got the product. We just went to a record label like A&M and said, look, you don't have to go to your accounts department and say, can we afford to record this? We've already got it and negotiate a good yeah, deal. Yeah. And it's a kind of a no brainer. Did you have the same thing that you said, look, we've we've recorded it. You don't have to really do much apart from, and we understand about contracts a bit more. Did you, were you able to negotiate quite a good deal with EMI at that stage? Uh, yeah, funnily enough, Miles Copeland was on the loft as a record in, <laughs> in the 90s. Um, uh, yes, we were, because we had an album. Uh, we'd always been, uh, accident for, for quite a few years, we'd evidently been quite smart in that we'd always paid for the making of our own albums. So we owned, you know, we owned, the, we owned them ourselves. So we were, we've always licensed our music to uh, various people. Um, and it's always been ours. So um, we were sort of accidentally uh, smarter than we thought. Terrible business. We were all terrible business people, but we accidentally did a good thing by um, making the album uh, because I, we were, because we had a massive sense of self belief and that we knew what we were doing and we knew what we'd liked and we knew what we wanted it to sound like and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's a lot of headstrong people in that band, and so we'd be determined to do the thing that we wanted to do. That's why we left One Little Indian because they were trying to turn us into something else. Maybe I don't know, but um, it was uh, it was um, what do you call it? It was like uh, validation in a way that when the song was a massive hit, then we thought, yeah, you know, we've sort of been doing this for years, and uh, now this has happened. I think that I think that pulp parallel is 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 a really good one to make. I think. Uh, Although they were in a slightly different scene to us, I think there was a, it was a, it was a similar sort of trajectory for us, and so when success came, 
think we were able to uh, uh, deal with it in a way where we didn't go completely bonkers and um, kept a lid on things and managed to keep the band going and not explode or implode yes. uh, as, a, as a group of people. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and we'd been, you know, be, by then, you know, we'd been friends for 15, 20 years, you know, like, so um, we already had a, had a and, and, and what we did, which I think is what Pulp did as well, is that they split the uh, songwriting between the, everyone in the band. So there was, so there was never, because we worked as a collective uh, and everybody had different roles within the band, uh, we valued everybody's role uh, uh, on an equal level. And everybody had an equal say, and everybody had equal responsibility, and everybody made exactly the same amount of money from the band. And I think that was something that kept us together as well, because there was never that thing where, you know, uh, there were people were falling out because somebody was getting paid ten times as much as somebody else. Yeah. So that really motivated us, motivate, and that really motivates you to do, you know, the whatever your job is within the band. And you can because you know other people are, are doing their jobs as well as they can. Yeah. Did it? Did you have that kind of a good fella? Did you have a bit of a good fellas vibe though at times when when things started to happen and then members of the band started rolling up in quite fancy clothes or cars or go oh look I've just bought this amazing new house did that did that did you ever have that moment like Robert De Niro going oh my god I told you not to go and spend all the money did that happen with the band did you see people changing at all? <laughs> I did, you know what? Not really, no. And the only person who probably did that was me. <laughs> I bought an old classic car. I bought an MG classic car, and that was about it. And I think, I think that I think people thought that was a bit ostentatious. <laughs> that was that was about as far as it went, really. Um, I think we were all really. You know, everybody was, you know, like I, I think as it came at a point in our lives where we were all, you know, mid to late thirties. So um, it, it, what it did, obviously, was provided some sort of uh, security for everybody. And, you know, there was, you know, the, and because we were a band of men and women, you know, there was women in the band who like, were like thinking, you know, I want to have a kid, you know, I want to have kids. And uh, now we're in a position where I can, uh, you know, buy a house and have some sort of security. Yes. So there was there was really sort of practical pragmatic things going at the same time, you know, being you know being rock and roll stars in a way, you know, there were those two worlds sort of came together at, at that point in our lives. Yeah. So the so we so we didn't all you know it didn't all go up all our noses. You know, people were really. Um, I think we were like. I think also, I think what happened, we know we'd all grown up in northern industrial towns and had never had lives like that and uh, had never expected that to come along. And we were all incredibly sensible about what we did. You know, we did give a lot of money away to various organisations, but also, you know, we kept a lot of it as well. And, um, and what, what, that, what that song has done, it has given me you know, a creative life for the last 25 years. I've been able to do stuff uh, that I wanted to do because of the success of that one song. Um, so I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm really proud of what, uh, you know, of what that song's done. And, and, and I'm really happy for the, all the opportunities it's give, given me along the way. I would, I would have probably never been able to make this, that film 
I probably wouldn't have been able to do the one man show because those sorts of things don't make money. You know, it's it's a it's a massive commitment and a, and a lot of work. Um, and there's no you know there's no there's no money in music in music documentary really. And there's there's uh, no money in doing going around the country doing a one man show. I do it because uh, I uh, I have a passion for doing that, and that's that's something that I feel as though. A, I really enjoy. I love the fact that it brings people together in a space and see, you know, it satisfies uh, my creative urges. Yes. And so, also, you know, it gives us an opportunity to still do stuff, you know, to still uh, contribute to, uh, you know, political causes in a way that's sort of really important to me as well. Yeah, to be honest, it's great to hear a story like that because because um, I did an interview with Tony Basil who did Mickey and she never earned a penny from that song. Oh, it was like wow. that yeah. was, a, and also um, Doctor and the Mad what? Medics. Whoa. I know, I know, not one penny. So she's like wow. kind of bitter a bit. So it's good to you know you you could know what a contract looked like and um, knew how to navigate that kind of probably the signature in the right place could give you a lot of um, yes influence power and um, a better bank balance but look just briefly then <clears throat> you've had that success you've suddenly got a bit of a bigger audience just a bit um then how do you then try and grind yourselves as a band and individuals to then co go into the studio to record your follow-up which is kind of a couple of years later which is the one what you see is what you get what was that kind of process like because did you have a a moment but, of just having just, to can i just uh, i've just got uh... Oh, so yes. Sorry about this. Um, I've just got to tell somebody that I'm doing an interview. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's That's Sophie, fine. You know, the co my co-director. Nice. Um, it's just uh, calling. Does she want to make an edit? All right, okay. Sorry. Okay. So uh, ask you ask me that question again. About yes. So so you've you've had that massive global success, which is obviously a bit of a surprise. You've you know you're number one in most countries or number in the top five, and then you have to then somehow ground yourself to then bring out an, the next studio album, which is what you see is what you get, which is a much bigger um, beast, really, isn't it? With probably a bigger budget. So did you then? How did the process? develop to write that material apart from the one cover you do uh that was uh what's interesting about the development of that album and when that album came out is that again i think there's a split in what people think in the band about that album and um that that album was almost as deliberately shooting our in the uh, because we were not to just make another tub thumper album obviously record labels universal and, and emi they just wanted another tub thumping uh to have another hit and we had always prided ourselves on uh that we always tried to do something different and we didn't just churn out album after album of music that sounded exactly the same as the previous album we always wanted to try and change um, and so when we uh, had to make uh, a follow-up album, we first started doing, we first started uh, writing stuff and it sounded too much like the, it sounded too much like what we'd done before. And so we decided to try and do something uh, that was different, that was sort of a bit more, um, 
conceptual in that what's uh, interesting about the album to me is that it's sort of like a critique of what happened to us um, spending so much time out of, the, out of the UK and being on the road and experiencing other cultures and other, and, and other ways of living. <clears throat> and so we created an album that's completely different to the previous album and obviously that wasn't what the record labels wanted record labels when you when you're doing really well they just say oh yeah we're in it for the long haul doesn't matter if you don't have another hit then when you don't have another hit it matters massively to them and then they drop you <laughs> and so in a way we knew we we sort of knew what we were doing by making that album we never set out to be you know a, an industry band you know we just wanted to carry on doing the things that we felt passionate about and so it was a deliberate, a deliberate attempt to extricate ourselves from uh, the the music industry in a way that meant that we could carry on being creative and doing new stuff without having to uh, be at the mercy of a major label telling us uh, what to do and when to do it. Do you look back so at that, that album? Do, that you, album. do you look back and still are pleased with making that decision, or do you slightly regret it? Uh, and, no, I don't. Re- no, I don't regret it because I think it was a collective decision. So um, you know, even if even if I thought no, let's write another. Oh, actually, we did try and write another tub thumping. That's it. We did try and write another hit. That's it. We wrote a song called "Top of the World." Uh, there was that we were trying to model it on um, tub thumping, and it did okay, but nobody felt nobody felt happy. We all felt dirty about doing something like that, like trying to deliberately write a hit song. It just felt really unrewarding, and it just felt as though that's this isn't us and what we do. You know, we do stuff where we want to do something new or different, or we want to challenge our audiences and challenge ourselves. And we'd never count out to what um, you know what what people had wanted us to do. We'd always sort of been really. Uh, uh, obstinate and uh, uh, and pig-headed about what we did because uh, and that's what it felt like we did with uh, WYSIWYG because the experience at Top of the World was not a very enjoyable one. Yes, it was important that we uh, that we that we did the thing that we wanted to do. So, what was then your next studio album? Not the the one of covers, but the one which was Un. What was that a better experience, or were you beginning to sort of flag a bit? Uh, point. Yeah, I think I think at that point we were sort of starting to uh, we'd had the success of tub thumping. We'd had that couple of years of being in the limelight, and then we'd gone back to being uh, a smaller band who were playing smaller venues. And what happened, I think, is we lost a lot, um, you know we lost a lot of our hardcore audience in that period. Uh, and so we we came back and we were doing smaller shows and just to uh, you know like to to having uh, to not having the same uh, access to the media and um, uh, sales dipping massively and stuff like that. So it meant that we were all in a slightly different place, I suppose. And um, and I think. That point meant to do different stuff as well. Uh, so it was a, uh, it was yeah, it it sort of felt as though um, 
we were trying to be, uh, you know, a small independent band again, and it was uh, it, we were struggling to do that in a way. Yes, uh, but uh, and creatively, I think we were sort of going off in different directions as well a little bit. Did you so when feel it, when it got, we did? I think go on. I said when you were, did you feel when when you were making it that this was going to be your last album with the band? Was that there was that sense of this this is kind of losing um, its kind of I think energy? Was, yeah, yeah. I, I for me, yes, yeah. It probably did. Um, that whole that whole story isn't in the film in a way because it wasn't a particularly you know it was it was it wasn't a particularly interesting story in a way. Include so I didn't include it in the film, but um, I I think it became apparent that uh, you know like at that point um, a lot of people in the band had children you know really young children so people's um, uh, focus wasn't on the band as much as it had been I suppose and and so there was like about in band people that were sick so yeah six people in the band who became parents um very soon after you know in the early 2000s so a lot so a lot were like uh, their priorities have changed quite a bit as well and so we weren't touring as much and we weren't um and it, and it wasn't the same drive and this passion i don't think for the for, that we'd had in the 90s um which is understandable in a way you know and that's totally that's totally understandable. And, and so, like, when we made that pragmatic decision to change, the, you know, for the band to change to an acoustic uh, outfit, I think I thought that was the right decision uh, to make because I thought that um, they had, you know, they the people who were doing the acoustic thing had, had a, uh, could see that there was a, you know, there was an audience for that and they had the, they had the passion and the energy to do that. So I thought that was fine. I thought that was fine. Did you, would you have felt... And it was really... When, when, when Chumbawamba Mark II happened, did you, did you have ever moments of thinking, I really hope they're not too successful. This would really kill me if they were, became, you know, fantastic again and suddenly they got some new members in. Did, but did you ever have a few sleepless nights worrying about the, the next phase? <laughs> That is such a brilliant question. <laughs> if, because I should say no, of course not. I was really pleased for them. I found it really difficult to go and watch them because it was Chumbawamba. Um, I think I would have found it easier if they changed their name. You know, if they called themselves something else, I could have would have probably found it easier to go and see them. I I felt I I. I felt it was difficult to um, get to go and watch what was something that I had felt so passionate about and felt was mine, uh, or one eighth of it was mine, and then I, I wasn't a part of it anymore. And so it felt weird. And, I, and, and just the whole idea of going to a gig and people coming up to me and saying, you used to be in that, you know, saying something about you used to be in that band. And... Um, it was a strange experience. It was a really, really strange experience. Yeah. So it was different. Yeah, I found it. I did find it difficult. I found it quite difficult. I was really, you know, like I, I, 
what I liked about what they did was that they found a new a new niche. You know, they found a, a they found a new audience. They found a uh, they became uh, sort of quite uh, uh, the darlings of a of a folk world that uh, Chumbawamba had sort of um, been on the periphery of for a few years, um, and they sort of threw themselves into that. So. Create, creatively, I thought it was really good for that for the people you know in who were still doing it that they found a way of getting it to work. I thought that was brilliant, but um, I did I did find it difficult to uh, go along and see uh, to to watch them. Uh, uh, I mean, what was I, what in a way what was good was that they were doing a type of music that I wasn't particularly interested in. I think if they'd been doing something, if they'd carried on doing, you know, what was Chumbawamba in the nineties, I would have been, I would have, I would have felt really uh, put out. At, but because they were doing something completely different and something that I knew that I could never be a part of because I can't sing to save my life, it was no great, you know. In that way, it was just sort of good for me um, that I wasn't, uh, that I wasn't, I didn't lose sleep over that. No, no, but, but God. It could have it could have been terrible if they went and had another number one hit, wouldn't it? Did you? I mean, with with the film, it comes over that you are the person who is still longing for the band. Did did, did you do you feel that when you watch the film that you're the one who's who hasn't moved on from the band? Did you did you and Sophie sort of have a bit of a discussion <laughs> about about that kind of relationship? <laughs> uh, yes. In a way, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think what the what making the film did for me was it it, it made me obsessed with keeping the legacy of Bamba alive in a way that for other people in the band it is not anywhere near as important to them. That idea that because what what happened is like I, I basically since I've been screening the film at festivals and that. I had people coming up to me all the time who were massive Chumbawamba fans. I really, and, and so I'm, every every screening, I'd be aware of what effect Chumbawamba had on some people's lives, and I'd and I and I'd be thinking, God, we've got to keep the legacy and do something with this. Whereas other people who never have anything to do with uh, those you know, those people or those audiences are just like, that was just something we did years ago. You know, why are you still why are you still going on about that? And yes, I do understand why people would think like, you know, for God's sake, Dunstan, let it go. It was 25 years ago. But, um, but you know, out of the film came the one-man show, and the one-man show is like a different beast altogether. Well, not altogether. But it's, you know, and that's more about, uh, you know, that's, more, that's even more about, you know, middle age and, you know, getting, getting to a point in your life. Where you wouldn't what you're actually doing with yourself. Yes. And uh, I think looking looking back at the Chumbawamba years, you know, like you, you, uh, I'm really proud of everything, you know, what you know the band and what we achieved and all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, and and I'm happy to use that uh, to something new. You know, I, I'm not ashamed of that at all. What does what does Chumbawamba mean for the other members of the band then? Like. All of them, you know. I mean, do they? I do they? You'd have to ask them. But when you had in the film, you know, you got them 
all back together and you know watching and having a chat did did they yeah. sort of did they also have warm feelings about the band and sort of a good memory or or was it quite mixed were people resistant and think like I really I just can't bear to think about it give me another 10 years and I'll process it and can cope but I just wonder what it was like for them sort of going over it again I think I think there was a I think there was a lot of lot of good feeling from other people in the band about me making the film. Um, I think, but but what did happen is when I finished it, we did a screening just for the band uh, of the film. And um, if I was to say the overriding emotion after watching the film, I would say it was relief. I think it was relief from other people in the band that. The film was my story. I hadn't tried to, to represent them in a way that was uh, that was unfair or or not the case. Um, and I think that was really important that the film became my story and was not me trying to tell everybody's story about the band. Because when we were making it, when we did that, well, in particular when we did that scene when we all got together and uh, you know talked about what we'd done. That was fantastic. It was a fantastic evening. It was really, really interesting. You can see we have a really good time together. But I think at the same time, people could never get their heads around about what I was actually trying to do with the film. And it was only once they saw the film that they understood in a way. And so, so some people had been a little bit resistant to being to to not to be involved in a way, you know, like or 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 to um, or to support the film in 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 some way, but um, I think it was only once they saw the finished thing um, they, that there was a sense of <laughs> relief that it was, that it was, that it is what it is. Yes. And did you feel as a process that there was something that changed with you making the film and then eventually having it edited and sort of completed? Did you feel like, right, I've kind of dealt with this this kind of a huge chapter in my life. I can now sort of look at the future a bit more differently than I did perhaps before. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. What what happened recently, right? Is is um, me and Sophie went to Warsaw for a film festival, and uh, she did three consecutive nights of screenings at this uh, at this film festival, and there was a lot of people in, uh, from all over uh, Poland to see the film and there was a lot of people who were uh, who were incredibly moved by the whole experience because they had seen remember, uh, when we'd played in Poland in the early 90s and that that had had a massive effect on them on them at the time and um, and so when we were so when you know the idea of the film is be saying you know did it make a difference did it achieve anything? I had people coming up to me and it was really emotional. People changed my life, totally changed my life. Don't don't ever doubt that it didn't that Chumbawamba didn't have a, an impact because it really did. And it really it, when you came to Poland, it was just life-changing. And that was and that sort of made me uh made me feel, I'm really glad, you know, that I was really glad that I'd made the film because um because not only did I work through a lot of things, you know, in the making of the film, I mean, I did the one-man show you know, on the back of making the film as well. So it sort yes. of sparked something new for me to go off and do, you know, the thing I was going to do next. And um, 
I wouldn't have done the one man show without doing the film and uh, um, and doing Interrobang as well was also you know part of the whole process for me and that's and that was within the film as well you know the, the idea that I got a new band together and we get band and and that's all that was really all that was like really uh, it, it was all really cathartic for me you know the whole the whole experience really. Yes, working with Sophie was uh, was was the best thing I've ever done because I could not have made that film by myself. It would have been a completely different film. It was it was the it was only her her actual skill as a documentary maker and her being on the outside of it all that uh, uh, that meant that we that we were able to make a film that wasn't uh, uh, an introspective look. Or a, or a fan film, you know, it, it, he brought this whole element to it that, that widened it out completely and made us look at the film in a, in a completely different way. Yes. And she stopped it being full of in-jokes as well, you know. Uh, she, she was like, look, I don't know what that's on about. That's meaningless to me. It's, you know, going, oh, but it's really funny. She'll be, she was like, yeah, but there's only seven other people who would find it funny. And what's the point of having that in the film? You know, there's no point. And so, and so she was, she really, really helped, you know, she's, she was amazing. She is amazing. Yes. And it was uh, completely uh, uh, helped as make a film, hopefully uh, we'll have universal appeal. So did, was it the case then that the film slightly changed as you started filming it that, and the way it finished and what you imagined it to be at the beginning of the process? Absolutely, it changed massively uh, because uh, um, what happens when we, were, when we took film festivals, we were pitching it as an idea or, or trying to get funding. Um, a lot of people were asking, what's the contemporary story? This film needs a contemporary story. You know, you're not big enough to have a film just about yourselves. You've got to, there's got to be something that brings it up to date. And we'd never, we, we thought at that point, we hadn't constantly that we would have to that we would have to tell a contemporary story, and that's when we changed the emphasis of the film to being about you know what you do when you get to a certain age and you want to you're angry about stuff and you want to do something. What do you you know what do you do about that? And um, and so that again that was what was that was what was brilliant about working with Sophie is that she she um, you know she was such a, a, an experienced documentary maker that she knew how to tell that story. And what we need, what we needed for the, the story to work, and 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 so as the film went on, <clears throat> I became more. It became more about you know me being her film and me in a way, and me being the subject of the film. Whereas before, I thought the subject of the film was Chumbawamba, and it shifted to to me being the subject of the film. And so the balance, almost the balance of power between me and Sophie shifted massively as well. You know, she became. You know, she 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 started off being the producer of the film, and then it became apparent that she had to be. You know, she was the director of the film as well, uh, and so that was an interesting process that we went went through, where we would, you know, where um, we would our roles would change slightly. Editing, I spent I spent all the time with editors, but she, but she was, you know, she like sort of had. Uh, I wouldn't say that she had the final say, but that she was she was a director and she was almost the exec producer on the film as well. She she had a number of roles that, um, that that helped to not make the film just be this introspective thing. 
Yes. When and when did the the idea of the the kind of tub tub thumping Frank Sidebottom character come in? Was that there at the beginning? You know, this kind of your your voice or your alter ego? Because that was that was a good part of the film. No, we just it? wanted to. Yeah. What happened was that we we were trying to decide how we would do uh, how we would tell the story and would it just be voiceover? Would it just be me doing a voiceover? And we just thought that seemed a bit traditional in a way, that we should try and do something else with it. And um, I think we'd had this, um, so we'd had this idea of, uh, of trying to uh, do it differently uh, and had thought about this idea of um, uh, In a Christmas Carol where, uh, you know, like... Uh, 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 Ali is, 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 you know, has all these visits from these ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future. And so we, we sort of stole that idea and we thought, yeah, let's have some, like, there should be some antagonist. Uh, I was the protagonist and we needed an antagonist. And, and I just like, um, I think I just turned up in this one day with our head. I said, oh, look what I've got. And uh, Sophie was like, what the hell is that? And I was like, oh, no, it's this thing that EMI Japan made for us. It's like, the, you know, the character off the front of the album. And, uh, and I put it on, you know, and we laughed about it. And then we were like, maybe that could be a younger version of you or something like that. Or it could be your inner voice or something like that. Maybe we could create a character. And it was at a time when we were trying to make the film uh, unlike a music documentary as it possibly could. Because obviously by that point, I'd watched so many music documentaries. I was really tired of seeing music docs that were just talking ad and then some archive and then another talking ad and then an art, some more archive. And we wanted to do something different with the film. We wanted to, we wanted to mess with the form, basically, in as big a way as possible. So, I mean, I think what comes out of the film is you can tell that we had a lot of fun making it. Because we messed around with so many different ideas and uh, yes, absolutely, and, and 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 actually, there was this thing that we used to say that um, you know Chumbawamba never made the same album twice. That we were always trying to change uh, from album to album. And I think we sort of took that philosophy with the film as well and thought, let's not do the same scene twice. Let's always try and think, come up with something new for every different thing. So that was a big part of it for us. Yes, and I I kind of got the feeling because there was a there was one of those classic characters who appears the the old anarchist bookshop chap in the record shop who um, talks about the blood of anarchists. Oh. oh yes, yeah yeah. You've always loved your critics, haven't you? You've always loved those kind of insults, or you all appear to love them. Well, I think kind of... you've just got to embrace it. You've got to embrace it, haven't you? Because people are always going to slag you off. I mean, you could never, I mean, you, you, you can be reduced to absolute stasis, stasis if, you, if you just, if you, if you listen to your critics all the time. And, and the film is about me listening to me in a critic. You know, I do, that happens all the time anyway. I don't need anybody else to be slagging me off. I'm self-critical enough as it is. Um, and, and so stuff like that is just like, yeah, I mean, that was the sort of criticism that we were used to all the way through, you know, Chumbawamba's career in a way. So it was no big, it was, um, to have some stuff like that in, I think is like, it, uh, for us to poke, uh, for, uh, for me to poke fun at myself in the film, I think is really important because I think Chumbawamba used to do that all the time as well. 
So it's, yes. it's a continuation of that, really. And what, what's really funny is that, you know, like, is um, uh, uh, my, you know, my working relationship with Sophie is such that she would, you know, she would, she would never leave ideas above my station, ever. You know, she would be, uh, she would shoot me down immediately if I was, like, acting in a, in a way, you know, like, there was... Uh, it's like, who the hell do you think you are? You know, she'd be like, no, that's not going to happen. And so she kept me feet. She's like kept me feet and me on the ground for all, you know, throughout the whole making of the film. And, you know, she rolls her eyes at me all the time. You know, like if I do anything that's vaguely pop starry or diva-ish, she would describe. <laughs> and whose so, idea was it know, to get so Penny from Crass? have people like that. Oh, that was mine. Yeah, yeah. Because just because... Um, uh, uh, he was such an important part of Chumbawamba's early years and he's such a character yeah that was just uh, I was like look we should try and interview him so we went to interview him and, and then we went back to do the performance for him to do the performance and we didn't know that's what he was going to do we had no idea I thought he was just, I thought he was just going to read something and he's like I'm going to do it naked are you? alright okay and then he was and I'm going to do a dance well like all right okay whatever you want to do penny we'll just film it and so that's what and so that's what happened basically yes no yeah. it's a classic he, was, and he is amazing he I mean, is a laurent to himself yes well absolutely an, an open house with just is it yeah no locks it's quite something actually yeah so look i'm gonna to have to go soon it's yes fun. Absolutely. So is there anything else apart from, yes, we've done it really. Um, so you're coming to Norwich on the 20, 28th on this tour. So there you go. Um, and it's going to be, yeah. you'll stand up doing your, is it kind of basically a. It's, yeah, it's not stand It's not stand up. It's not stand up. It's a whole performance. No, it's not stand up. It's a whole performance. It's a, a it's, you've got a stage set. It's got it's got visuals. It's uh, it's got it's got um, it's got songs. It's got songs in it. It's a whole mixture of stuff. It's like I suppose you'd call it multi. Would you call it multi media or something like that? But um, basically, what, basically, what happened is that when we finished this film, I said to Sophie, "We'll make another film together then." And she just went, "Nah." I was like, "What? Why not?" And she was like, well, look, I think you should be in front of the camera or you should be on stage or something. You should be performing. You shouldn't be behind the camera. And I was like, well, I'm making this, I'm writing this one-man show. And she was like, well, I'll direct that one-man show then. And so she is the director of the one-man show. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not stand-up and it's not me sitting in an armchair telling anecdotes. It's a completely different animal to either of them. It's it's sort of like um, it's quite high energy at times, but it's like it's like trying to get to the bottom of you know what do you do when you when you I'm a sixty one year old man you know I want I still want to change the world. It's 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 about that sort of idea. Excellent. Well, it's going to be exciting. Well, I'll be there. So there you have it. And there's cute, fantastic. A sessions. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And I'll try and find my VHS recorder to watch this again. <laughs> yeah, do your best. Yeah. I will. But look, I've really loved the film. Right. It's, it's amazing. And I'll um I can always send you this link if you want as well. Thank you, David. Okay, take care. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. What what will 
Yeah, let me know when this is on stuff like that. Yeah, I will, and I'll tweet it, and I'll make yeah. sure that the Norwich right, gets okay. to know about it. There you go. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Thank you, David. Thanks okay, a lot. See you soon. See you. Bye bye. And that is the end. To quote Jim Morrison. Anyway, a massive thank you to Dunstan Bruce for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The CD6 Show. If you want to contact me about something nice and groovy, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do CD6 Show. Also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Sorry about the quality. It was a bit glitchy at times, but there you go. That's life. Um, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>